This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We have seen an increased number of companies in recent years that encourage their workers to belong to some sort of campaign that incentivizes exercise and healthy living. In many cases, when the workers see that they may have added a couple of pounds, then they work harder to get into better shape. But that isn't always the case. In fact, in some instances, people become discouraged and give up. Understanding what drives or hurts success in these types of programs is part of new research study done by a pair of doctors here at the University of Pennsylvania and the Perelman School of Medicine. Dr. David Ash is executive director of the Center for Healthcare Innovation at the Wharton School, as well as a professor of medicine, medical ethics, and health policy. He joins me in studio. And joining us on the phone is Dr. Shreya Kengovi, who is an internist, pediatrician, and health policy researcher, as well as an assistant professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ash, great seeing you. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be here, Dan. Dr. Kengovi, great to have you with us. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Sheree, let, I guess take us into the, the research and, and what was the motivating factor to look at this? Yeah, so this is um, less of an empiric research study and more of a sort of thought exercise and observation. Um, the underlying motivation was, um, was drawn from other studies that both David and I have done. We both focus our research on trying to promote healthy behaviors um, because that really matters for health outcomes. And, you know, there's a lot that you can do um, that is effective. Um, But, you know, even when you have a really proven type of health behavior intervention, there's folks who don't respond. And we asked ourselves, you know, who are these individuals and what might be happening here? And when you think about it, a lot of these health behavior promotion programs are based on this premise that information is power, um, and we give patients signals of how they're doing on health behavior change, whether it's, you know, asking them to weigh themselves all the time or check their sugars, and we just assume that, you know, people are going to see that their weight is going up or their blood pressure is high, and they're going to do something about it, mm-hmm. but we started to challenge that assumption um, when we kind of realized from our observations that this wasn't always the case. And, and really, Dr. Ash, this becomes important an important area to look at right now because of the fact that relatively these types of programs are new within the last decade or so for many companies that are doing them right now. That's right. They are new. They are pervasive and they're extremely well-meaning, right? So employers fundamentally want their employees to be healthier. Frankly, people want to be healthier. So it's perfectly natural uh, for these kinds of programs to exist. Also, just think about it. We spend typically, most of us spend a lot more time with our employer than in other settings, at least in terms of our waking hours. So these are often the best settings in which to think about encouraging healthy behaviors. The challenge, as I think uh, Dr. Kangobi mentioned, is that a lot of these programs are designed with the idea that, of course, we're perfectly rational people. Like, of course, a little bit of feedback that, you know, you could lose a few pounds or, you know, you should eat a little bit less or something like that. that that, that, those kind, that kind of advice is naturally going to fall upon a kind of rational human being who's going to say, you know, you're right. The trouble <laughs> is that, like, I don't necessarily want to get on the scale in the morning and get that feedback. Sometimes that feedback isn't so helpful. Sometimes it's a little aversive. And the other part to it is also with all of this discussion going on right now about health care and health costs, these are programs that are designed for, in part, obviously, to 
hopefully have the worker, the employee feel better, but also because the companies are trying to see if they can manage their their healthcare costs as well. So, I mean, it's a, it's a unique du- kind of double-edged sword here. It is interesting. So, um it's not obvious that these programs will do a lot for the bottom line of companies financially. Yeah. Yeah. They might. Um, uh, but it's it's less likely that they'll do that than that they will promote a healthy workplace, which may provide benefits to employers in other ways. And, of course, employers want to be employers of choice and, in fact, want to attract healthy uh, employees as well. So even if they don't save money, and they may not, they could be good for society to the extent these programs work. But I think the challenge is that their effectiveness might be limited by the way they're structured. And as I think Dr. Kangovi has pointed out, uh, you know, it's possible that they could be structured a little bit better so that they don't rely so much on the feedback that may work well for some people, but not well for all people. So, Shreya, what are some of the things that in going through this research and potentially we need to look at as companies in terms of how we may need to tweak some of these programs? Sure. You know, I think starting with the research and then moving to what companies can do, um, there are a lot of studies that look at monitoring types of interventions. You know, these are programs that give people information about how they are doing. Um, And what we need to look at in these trials is just a really simple question, who benefits and who doesn't, rather than just assuming that everybody benefits. We need to kind of figure out, you know, who are the people that really, as Dr. Ash pointed out, are motivated by this feedback and have that sort of rational response of trying to regulate their behavior? And who are the folks um, and under what circumstances, uh, you know, do people become discouraged by that type of feedback? Um, Does depression, for example, predispose you to becoming avoidant and not wanting to step on a scale when you know that you're going to see a number that you don't like? Um, are, Are there other factors involved? And so we need to kind of figure out um, who these people are and aren't that benefit from feedback so that we can start to tailor these programs for the individuals who are most likely to benefit. So that, I think that's a key thing. Um, the other piece is that, you know, we all can become avoidant under the right circumstances, right? You know, like a lot of times, you know, if we know that we've been on an eating binge, we just don't want to step on that scale because we know that the number is not going to be pretty. Right. Um, so, you have to just more broadly help patients, employees cope with failure um, because that's such an inevitable part of any type of health behavior change. You're going to step on a scale and see a number you don't like. You're going to check your sugar and see that it's high. And how do you not beat yourself up over that? Um, and there might be a couple of strategies from borrowed from psychology, actually, that can help people um, cope and be resilient against their own failures. Like what? So one is um, it's got a wonky name called positive affect induction, but it's really just simply random acts of kindness. Um, Just small unexpected compliments or self-affirmation that can just help boost your mood after you, again, step on that scale and see a crummy number. It's just telling you that, you know, okay, well, you're not a bad person just because your weight is a little higher than you thought it would be. And think about some other areas in which you're proud of yourself or have had success. So that's one key thing because you don't want to deflate people so much that they just give up. The other piece um, is something called attribution retraining. And what that is is just teaching people to view their failures as controllable rather than uncontrollable. So a lot of times, you know, in education, for example, students will fail tests and 
some students will come out of that and just say, you know what, I'm just stupid. I'm, that's why I failed. And that's a really hard thing to overcome. If you think that, you're probably going to give up. So attribution retraining just coaches students to think it's not just stupid. It's that you just didn't study on Tuesday because, you know, you went out um, with your girlfriend on a date that night. And so breaking failure down into these concrete things that are really controllable, um, again, is a way of bolstering people against the inevitable challenges that they're going to face and helping them get back on the horse. Yeah, this I think uh, I think that's why this is so exciting because we could look at the distribution of success or failure with these programs and um, and sort of throw our hands up, or we can recognize that we're probably reflecting different kinds of traits and states that people are in, yeah. and then use that to tailor uh, the appropriate you know rec- intervention it's sort of it's funny you know we're we're in the age of precision medicine when you think about cancer treatment sure people yeah. don't have like just lung cancer anymore they have different kinds of lung cancer yeah. and now that we know that we also tailor different therapies to different kinds of lung cancer so that information is incredibly valuable and i think the same thing is true here with human behavior it was probably silly of us to think that a one-size-fits-all program could ever work and as Dr. Kangovi mentioned, we have probably better ways to understand now which patterns people are falling into and then, okay, now what do we do about it? And so there's something somewhat optimistic and progressive about this. But I would think, Shreya, that there, that there has to be a reason why we've kind of fallen into this one-size-fits-all mentality, whether it be the companies that are setting up these programs, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the medical community, whatever it might be. You know, there's probably multiple reasons. I mean, everybody prefers to think simplistically. It's easier, um, obviously, to just hope that there's a one-size-fits-all and walk away from it. Um, The other thing that's even maybe more interesting is sometimes we do a little bit of blaming the victim, right, where um, it's, you know, okay, well, there's there's this um, health promotion program. It's going to work for some people. It's not going to work for some people. And the people that it doesn't work for, well, they're just lazy and they don't care, right? right. So I think there's, there can be a little bit of that. And what's interesting is that what we're sort of learning and from our research and just thinking about is that actually the people who fail, maybe they care too much. You know, maybe they're just so hard on themselves um, that they don't want to see those bad numbers. And, and, and maybe we're making it worse for them by just forcing this feedback and this information down their throat. Um, what if we were a little bit kinder and gentler to those folks and, and didn't blame them? Um, I think we could actually get better results across the board. You said earlier that we need to obviously know more about these people. And, and when you were saying that, I was thinking, well, to a degree, do we have to have that information before these people even kind of start the program so we don't, to a degree, let them fall into that one-size-fits-all? Well, I think that's the holy grail, and you're exactly right. You know, ideally, uh, and just as, you know, David was mentioning about, you know, how we think about precision medicine, you don't try, you know, a chemotherapy on somebody and then realize, oh, this is the wrong one. You know, you do a blood test right when they're diagnosed with cancer. You figure out what subtype they have, and then you can tailor up front. That's what we're hoping to do, and that's where I think the science comes in. We need um, to understand from these trials of these types of interventions Um, what are the characteristics of people who are likely to learn from failure versus folks who are likely to become avoidant? Um, And and we keep talking about this as if there's, you know, group A and group B, but I I think, as as David pointed out earlier, it's states and traits, right? 
all of us could become avoidant under the right circumstances. And so it's really kind of figuring out what circumstances promote avoidance and, you know, how can we predict that and and maybe do something else? David? You know, it's interesting because this discussion in some respects is two steps away from where most businesses currently are. They're actually two steps removed from this because businesses, frankly, most health promotion programs from any source are fundamentally based on the idea that people are perfectly rational actors. I just have to educate you that there are 600 calories in that bran muffin and then you are less likely to eat that bran muffin. Or I just need to tell you that smoking is dangerous. Of course, you'll quit smoking. And and no one is against the idea of educating people about risks or or, uh, uh, health-promoting activities. It's just that in most cases – we already pretty much know. I think most Americans already know that smoking is bad for them. Yeah. And so – and yet these programs that we see are typically designed around the idea of educating people or encouraging them in very rational ways. The field of behavioral economics, which is incredibly strong here at Wharton and at Penn more generally, recognizes that people, frankly, are not so irrational, so rational most of the time. They're often irrational. Yeah. Uh, the advantage of behavioral economics, though, is that we are irrational in highly predictable ways. And right. frankly, it's the predictability of that that helps us. The work that Shreya is describing is takes it one step further, which is some of us respond to different interventions for our irrationality than others. And so it's it's sort of two steps removed from the typical program, which is we are all the same, we are all rational, uh, and and therefore an education program works. Not That's really way, way too simplistic. But this, this to a degree, this lack of understanding, I mean, it's not prevalent in, in medicine in general, which I find interesting that if you can have a kind of a recognition in one area of medicine that it, it kind of it doesn't filter down all the time to other areas of medicine, correct? Yeah. Well, so I think that's uh, so much of medicine, like sort of move from business to medicine um, uh, right here. So much of medicine and interactions between physicians and patients is based on the idea that we will give counseling to our patients about ways to improve their health. And I have absolutely nothing against that activity. Right. But if you were to think about that as a strong intervention, an intervention that in the way we might give chemotherapy, then we might, you know, frankly, want to be a little bit smarter and more thoughtful about that intervention. And yet we tend to use a one-size-fits-all counseling strategy. It tends to be based on the idea that if I give my patients information, they will naturally follow it. It does not explain, for example, why even after a heart attack, one year later, only half of the patients who have been prescribed really life-saving medications are still taking them. Right. So that clearly reveals that there's some gap between the kinds of approaches we're using behaviorally in healthcare and the kinds of results we want to achieve, the same thing is going to be true in employment settings. It's really going to be universally true. Dr. Kangovi, how does the monitoring part of this play into the overall concern? Because obviously monitoring takes a couple of different forms. In some cases, you may have a weigh-in or a check-in with a with a medical professional that may be linked to the company, or it's it's self-monitoring. How right. how does monitoring play in in general? Two sets of really great questions. So first, kind of at a high level, what is monitoring doing here um, versus just other types of health promotion? And then what's the difference between self and other monitoring? Um, so, you know, anytime you have a health promotion campaign, there's going to be fall off, right? You know, so if the campaign is like, hey, everybody like walk a thousand steps a day, right. you're going to see like 80% of people doing it the first week and then 50 and then so there's going to be a drop off. 
What we're pointing out, I think, is really kind of more um, striking than that, which is that the monitoring itself might be chasing people away. It's not just the usual loss of interest or, you know, I have other things to do with my time or I don't feel like it anymore. It's that, hey, there's a group of people who might have kept walking if they didn't have a signal in their face all the time or some of the time, um, or if they weren't worried about a signal, telling them that they were failing. Because for a certain group of people, and that's a pretty large group, we think, um, that signal is so demoralizing from an emotional standpoint, or it just makes them feel, again, like they just don't have control over their successes and failures. And so that group of people could have been keeping up with this type of health promotion if not for the monitoring, which that's really the striking part here, because here we are thinking that, like, again, information is power. Let's tell people stuff. It's definitely got to help. And maybe there's a subgroup for whom it's it's actually harming them. So that's one piece of why the monitoring part is really important. Um, we don't know that much about the differences, I think, in this response to failure with self-monitoring versus other monitoring. You do have to assume, though, that any kind of, um, you know, avoidance that you feel when you have a bad result is going to be amplified if you have to share that with your nurse, your doctor, yeah. your, you know, community health worker, um, or in any kind of public forum. And so, um, and there's some evidence to support that. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School in school in studio, I should say, with Dr. David Ash and on the phone with Dr. Shreya Kangovi. Uh, we're talking about the research that uh, they have done looking at uh, health programs involving companies and the outcomes involved in some of these. Uh, I guess the question then is, Dr. Ash, where do we kind of take this information and, and obviously getting it out to the public, getting it out to health entities, getting it out to companies is, is an important component here to start to really look at some of these programs and whether or not we're seeing a, an abnormally high rate of failure because of some of these factors. Yeah, it's a great point, Dan. I mean, I think, you know, there's nothing so compelling as a really good idea. And uh, the thing is that these programs are built on the good idea that uh, of course, people should know their numbers, and of course, they should move forward. Right. And and frankly, the, that's the sort of headwind or ballast or whatever the right metaphor is that keeps employers, for example, from, you know, frankly, taking a critical look at the effectiveness of these programs or the fact that they that that when they are effective, those positive results may be distributed highly unevenly right. across their workforce. So I I think. In some sense, that's the first step is to get people to be critical and really examine what's actually happening as opposed to the feeling good about the appealing notion of a workplace wellness program. I'm actually enthusiastic about workplace wellness programs if they're designed carefully and with some thought to the way real people make real decisions. But I don't – I'm not so positive about them as they're currently designed, uh, frankly. I I would never buy a scale – that I would sit in my bedroom that would tell me my weight vocally, right? You can get these scales that instead of you read read what you weigh, it says it out loud, yeah, like, yeah. you know, you weigh 200 pounds. Like, I don't think that would be something I'd want my wife to overhear, particularly since, and this is radio, I'm five foot five. Right. And so, like, and so I, I think if we always think that know your numbers or that everyone should know your numbers and, and, and somehow that will be motivating, that assumes that we are – 
a kind of animal that isn't very human, to be honest. So what you're saying is to a degree we need to prevent the megaphone effect from coming in here where we're blaring something out. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I, if I'm a little concerned about my weight or a lot concerned about my weight, the last yeah. thing I want is for anybody else to hear it. And I might be, frankly, a little worried about seeing it so overtly myself. There is a, you know, there are times when ignorance is bliss. Shreya, what would you like to see happen? Yeah, so I think first, uh, just exactly as David said, just acknowledge that we're poking a hole in a pretty pervasive dogma here. Um, you know, we're in the age of knowing your numbers, whether it's employee wellness or Fitbits or, you know, all the, the digital devices that can tell us, you know, every single thing that's going on and track it and tell us the feedback about it. And what we're seeing is that those types of efforts really work for some people, but they tend to be the ones who might be healthier in the first place. And so what I'd like to see happen is that we can continue to use those, but then when people or a subgroup of people kind of fall off or fail those efforts, that we don't just shun them or put them to the side, we engage them. Um, so if I'm running a company and I have everybody kind of, um, you know, with a pedometer for a month, um, and 50% are crushing it and the other 50% just stop walking or stop using the pedometer, um, let's, let's get a focus group together. Let's talk to these people and figure out, you know, what happened um, and maybe put in some other strategies like coaching or, like I said, the, you know, the, the random acts of kindness so that if you don't check your pedometer one day, you get a text and that says, you're okay. You know, it's okay that you didn't, you didn't do it or you didn't make your steps today. Like tomorrow's another day, you know? So just again, being a little kinder um, with the, with the folks who may already be beating themselves up about failure. So because of the abundance of technology that we have here, do you believe that, that the technology side that obviously is a, a multi-billion dollar industry at this point has the ability to be an assistant in this process. It's just kind of coming at it from the right perspective. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, technology is what we make it and what we make of it and what we make it to be. So we need to develop um, a little bit more science and understanding of, you know, a, a failure in health behavior change. And then maybe we can get technology to assist us by doing some of the tailoring work that we just talked about. Yeah, I think this is a great point, and I, I, I'm actually very optimistic about technology, but I want to see it as an enabler. It's not a leader, right? Fitbits don't make you walk more, but they can enable a lot of other strategies. And frankly, when the, the early sort of self-monitoring technologies came out, whether they're pedometers or whatever, they get picked up by the, the quantified selfers, right? These are the people who log every single step they take, and they mm -hmm. map everything. They photograph every meal that they've taken. Um, those people, you know, have a totally different disease, right? <laughs> they, have, yeah. they have some yeah. kind of <laughs> obsession. Yeah. And then and – it, and, and it was natural but actually flawed for people to think, well, we just need to give everyone Fitbits. We just need to, to turn them into quantified selfers. But you're not going to turn – you're not going to turn couch potatoes into, they're into quantified selfers. They're fundamentally different creatures. And yeah. so those people were so motivated to do the measurement – but the people we want to reach, as Shreya has pointed out, are often the ones who are, frankly, not so interested in that. And so the question is, how could we use technology to enable the people who wouldn't have been intrinsically motivated to do that in the first place? Those people, frankly, were probably fit 
eating right, they were already getting intrinsic rewards. That, I think, is the challenge. But what about the people that maybe from a financial perspective don't have the ability to have that technology? Because in some cases, there's obviously an investment that that people have to make, and that may reach the people, as Sharia kind of mentioned before, that may already be relatively healthier in comparison to people that may not be healthy, who may not have the finances to, to access that technology. Uh, totally right. I think it's, an, it's another example of the digital divide. Now, it, while it is true that these, this technology is getting cheaper and much more ubiquitous, it will always be the case that yeah. the, the more resourced people are going to be able to be ahead of the curve there. And, and, um, uh, and that's true. And to the extent that we think that these are fundamental, fundamentally important principles, then you would think, well, then maybe we need to find ways to distribute this technology. Now, I, still, I think we're still ahead of the game because I have yet to see really well-designed um, programs that use technology to move things forward right. uh, in really effective ways. I think if we got there and found those things and we found that we simply couldn't distribute them to broad populations, then we think that this is an agenda for you know some kind of social recovery. Trey? No, I totally agree. And I think um, there's still a role for human touch in all of this. Um, obviously, technology can be, as, as David said, very enabling. Um, most of my research focuses on the use of community health workers. These are, you know, trusted lay people um, yeah. who typically come from within low-income communities, and they're the ones making the initial kind of contact with with um, patients or employees um, and helping them think broadly about health behavior change. And I think, you know, particularly for marginalized patients or those who don't have the resources or, you know, just living in the world of technology all around them, that human touch can still be really important. Great having you both with us today. Thank you, uh, Shreya, for uh, joining us on the phone. Greatly appreciate your insight. Thank you. Thank really you. appreciate being here. Thank you. David, great to meet you. Thank you for coming over today. Great. Thanks, Dan. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 